The episode you're about to listen to was released back when the Mere Christians podcast was called The Call to Mastery. Now, if you love Mere Christians, you're still going to love these older episodes because the majority of each conversation focuses on how the gospel influences the work of our guests. With that disclaimer out of the way, please enjoy the episode. Hey everybody, welcome to The Call to Mastery. I'm Jordan Rayner. This is a podcast for Christians who want to do their most exceptional work for the glory of God and the good of others. Each week, I host a conversation with a Christ follower who's pursuing world-class mastery of their craft. We talk about their path to mastery, their daily habits, and how their faith influences their work. Today's guest is Tom Bancroft. He's a world-class animator with more than 30 years of experience, much of which was at Disney where he animated for Beauty and the Beast, The Lion King, Aladdin, Pocahontas, and Mulan. And he wasn't just a low man on the totem pole. He was the head animator who created Mushu and a lot of other characters. Tom and I sat down. We had such a fun conversation. We talked about what it was like being at Disney during the animation renaissance that followed The Little Mermaid in 1989. We talked about how films like Tangled can help us long for the true myth of Christianity. And we talked about how we Christians have to wrestle with really tough questions about how we can work in workplaces that are increasingly hostile to the gospel. My kids may or may not have also made a guest appearance in today's episode. It's a lot of fun. I think you're going to love it. Please enjoy this episode with my friend, Tom Bancroft. Hey, Tom, thanks for doing this. Hey, it's good to be here, Jordan. Thank you for having me. So for the last few days, I have been the hero in my household with three young girls under the age of six, right? I've been been talking you up. I'm talking to the guy. Oh, dang. I was trying to figure out how you pulled this off. I have four girls and I've never been the hero. So you you just talked about me and that made you a hero. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This guy who drew Simba and Pocahontas and Mushu, my kids. Well, they think you're the coolest. I'm not really the hero. So you've got four daughters. They didn't think you were like the coolest guy in the world growing up, drawing all these Disney characters? Thank you for making this the official first question. Uh, (laughs) No. So yeah, that's the weird thing is I have this, and it starts with my wife, I blame her. We have this weird culture in our family, in our immediate family, where the idea is to not make ever a big deal about dad. Don't talk about what he does for a living. Don't don't be impressed (laughs) by him in any way, shape, or form. And they're really su- succeeding. I mean, I have such a... <laughs> I mean, they're doing a great I'm not, job. I'm beyond humble. I'm kind of crushed all the time. <laughs> the the sub part to that, which is that my wife, and this is where I totally blame her for, is is uh, she hates Star Wars. She hates all the movies that basically defined me and made me go down right. this direction. She hates. And she won't watch cartoons. She doesn't... She won't say this, but she really doesn't like cartoons. And so... She's only gone to like red carpet premieres with me to see the movies I worked on because, well, that's cool. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, and so she'll watch them for a red carpet premiere. But basically to get dressed no, up. So, yeah, on Netflix, forget it. She's not going to watch a cartoon with me. 
forget it. That's hilarious. Yeah. So that's actually got to be nice, though. It's a nice balance, right? You're, that's what people you're say. animators all day yeah. long. <laughs> no, I, I've heard that. That's what people yeah, tell they me. They tell yeah. me that that's the way it should be and blah, blah, blah. But I'm still daily crushed. Yeah. I love it. I love it. That's, that's what we should be. It's very humbling to be at home. I, I know that it full is. well. So, hey, speaking of my mm-hmm. kids, Kate, my four-year-old, wanted to come on and ask you directly a few questions. Do you mind if she oh doesn't? Oh my gosh, I'm excited. Yes, let's <laughs> <Okay>. do this. <gasps> Hi, my name is Kate. What was the hardest part of drawing Pocahontas? <laughs> All right. Well, Kate, you, you picked a good character because Pocahontas, everything about her was hard. But, you know, in general, I would say it was her face. She just had a really hard face to draw from different angles. And I was constantly, there was a supervising animator that I worked with, Glenn Keane, who designed her. And he was really the only one that knew how to draw her from every angle. And so we were constantly going to him for drawings. He literally would do drawings for us to help us get a certain angle or a certain look. So yeah, I had help. I had a cheat sheet. We're big Pocahontas fans. Oh, good. Yeah, in this house. In fact, we were watching it the day before we found out you were coming on the podcast. So good timing. All right, Kate, you got another question. Go ahead, Kate. What was the hardest part of drawing the songs? So I think what Kate's getting at here is how do you take these characters from just walking along to actually singing? What what did that look like, Tom? Well, a lot of people don't know this, but the voices are usually done or always done before the animation. And Hmm. especially back in those days to today with computers, the voice actors do their part. And in this case, maybe it's singing a song, right? And we then do our drawings to match up to that soundtrack. And we have tools to do that. One is called an exposure sheet where we can literally see what frame say the D and dance, or if that's what they're singing right then. I know that on frame 15, that's a a D at the beginning of that word. Mm -hmm. And so on that drawing for frame 15, I have to make her and Pocahontas doing a D, you know, like a D sound with her mouth. Hmm. That's cool. Yeah, Yeah, that's cool. By the way, did you see the documentary, uh, the docu-series on Disney Plus on the making of Frozen 2? I did. I can't remember if I finished it, but I did watch it. It was really well done. It was super well done. It was kind of a little painful to watch, and I think that's why I didn't finish it. I bet for <laughs> you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, but for those of us that don't know your world, it was a blast. All right, Kate's got yeah. one last question. All right, go ahead, Kate. Why does Simba's dad have to die? Kate's asking the hard questions today. I should just say the lame answer, which is that it was in the script. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. The writers told me to do it. Well, Kate, honestly, you know, sometimes when we're growing up, we need something in our life to happen that's very powerful that will then send us in a new direction and that we need that to happen. And sometimes it's a sad thing, not always a happy thing that will will change our life. And in this case, that was that moment for Simba where his when his dad died, he felt guilty about it. He thought it was his fault. And that set him down a path of feeling guilty and kind of going the wrong direction for a while with with two bachelor friends that he met, <laughs> Humbo and Timon, who just wanted to have a good time and party and dance. And that wasn't really what his responsibilities were. And so he had to then kind of come back and realize, wait, it wasn't my fault. And I want to be more like my dad and remember him the right way. I'll explain what bachelor means to you, Kate. 
Sorry. When, when, <laughs> when, when you're older. No, hey, that was that was a terrific answer that, to a so. really tough question. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She that was a, not a softball. That was a real hard one for that sure. That was a real hard one. Well, hey, Kate, thank you so much uh, you, for those questions. Yeah. So, Tom, real quick, getting into your story, what years were you at Disney? Let's see. I started there, yeah, 1989, the very beginning of 89, and then – uh, 2000, I left, I left the first time and then came back for another year later after I went to Big Idea in 2000. And then they went bankrupt a couple of years later. I came back to Disney just to finish Brother Bear. So all total, it was, and that was around 2003. So the second time I left was about 2003. When we talked last week, I mentioned that one of my all-time favorite books is Disney War. This This story of Michael mm. Eisner's tenure as CEO of Disney from 84 to 2004. I actually just reread it for like, I don't know, the fourth or fifth time. And I forgot that Eisner almost shut Disney animation down. That was the plan when they came in. Yeah. Yep. And then they did Little Mermaid when you were there, right? In 1989, yeah. it was released. Mm -hmm. It just exploded. Animation kind of became the thing. So was that how it happened with you? Like they were just on a hiring spree of animators because they were just doubling down on animation at the time? Well, yes and no. Actually, when we came, and I say we because I have a twin brother and we yeah. went to CalArts together. We're both animators at Disney. And so our trajectory, especially at the beginning of our career, is identical. So just like us. I, oftentimes when I refer to myself in the past, I say we. Um, <laughs> it's a twin thing. Uh, so... But when we got there, it was perfect timing, but we didn't know it. This was another God timing thing where you don't, you know, you think it's actually not a great time, but then it turns out to be the best because like two weeks later, everything changes. Yeah. And it was sort of like that in that the whole industry was really crumbling. Uh, there mm -hmm. were like a lot of TV animation studios like Deke and, uh, you know, made Inspector Gadget, things like yeah. that back in the day. And Hanna-Barbera was actually going down and... There was tons of layoffs and, and, and closings. And meanwhile, Disney wasn't doing so hot, but, and, and a lot of people give Little Mermaid the credit for like sort of saving animation or especially Disney. It's not totally true. If you back it up a little bit more than that, a couple other big things happened, which was just the summer before that was Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. That was a big hit. Big, expensive. Big expensive, expensive to make. Yeah, hit. yeah, exactly. Yes. And super time consuming. But it really reinvigorated because it had that nostalgia, which, by the way, is looping back now. People have a lot of nostalgia about 2D animation. But hmm. back then, it brought back some old characters. It was more like character nostalgia, uh, Betty Boop and things like that that were kind of coming back. That people remembered and Bugs and seeing Bugs and Mickey together, those things. But uh, the other thing that happened was that the Bluth studio left. They were animators from uh, Don Bluth and John Pomeroy and Gary Goldsmith. <laughs> That's the <laughs> score composer, uh, Goldman. Uh, they had left Disney. There were three animators that were at Disney on Fox and the Hound and, and even before that. <laughs> and they were really good. At, this is a whole sub story. But they left Disney and took about 20 other people with them, 20, 25 wow. other people, and started their own studio, the Don Bluth Productions. And then they came out with the, their first feature film, The Secret of Nim. Hmm. So a lot of your listeners are going, yeah, I remember that. I know they are. Uh, because <laughs> it was a big hit. And yeah. immediately Disney had competition finally with people that basically were – and they ended up making Anastasia and other films that many people to this day think were Disney movies. But anyway, those two big things happened 
just before or right around Little Mermaid. Then, of course, Little Mermaid came out and just took it to the next level. But it really wasn't until Lion King. Yeah, that was the uh, that was the big one, and that was the billion dollar movie, and and just made three times probably what any of the other movies had made to that point, maybe even more than that. But and that's when the real hiring thing happened, where it was just they were hiring like crazy at that point because they decided we're hey if we can make this much with one movie every year, let's make two movies a year, and that was a Jeffrey Katzenberg decision. But that led us down to basically having to double the studio. Um, and they were happy to do it because they were making a ton of money. So Jeffrey Katzenberg, head of the – what was his official title at the time? He was head of Walt Disney Studios, right? But he was the head of, of feature animation. Yeah, like head he, of the animation. The and then eventually the the whole studio, I believe. But if, for, for my listeners who have heard me talk about Disney War before, yeah, Jeffrey Katzenberg is quite the character. So you left Disney the first time in 2000. You went to Big Idea, the creators yeah. of VeggieTales. What led you to make that move? Well, my heart, and that's that's what I tell people in, in in non-Christian podcasts. So here I can say it was definitely God. I really was following my heart because I had it's it is a long story, and I do want to tell parts of it. It's hard for me not to yeah, do please, it long. Yeah. I'll try and condense this a little bit. I had risen to the top. I'd gotten all the way to where I wanted to be, which was I was a supervising animator on Mulan, uh, yeah. and I designed Mushu the dragon, and he was my character. But to get there. And it was about 10-ish years to get there. I had been doing like crowd scenes and all the stuff you do early on as an animator, but it took a long time. And at least in my viewpoint, looking back, I'm like, no, it was a few years, right? It wasn't, but I was working my way up and, you know, I did uh, Pocahontas and Pocahontas and I did Young Simba and, and Lion King, but never like, I was always trying to get the juicier and juicier parts. And I wasn't a supervisor. I wasn't the lead guy that designed Pocahontas or Simba. I always had somebody above me. And then finally, I got that position on Mulan, and I just killed myself. I just, for about two years straight, overtime all the time, I, I had a daughter during that time, Ansley, or my middle daughter, and I hardly saw her as a baby because of Mulan. And and it, I'm not blaming Disney. I'm blaming yeah. myself, really. Yeah. But they did kind of take and take and take, just like any corporation will, if, if you're willing, you know, and just keep saying yes to every opportunity they'll keep taking, right? Yeah, yeah. And especially if you're doing a good job. And so that's what I was doing. I was just trying to prove to them that I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. And so right at the end there, I had just finished Mulan and literally had maybe a couple weeks off. And then they said, will you work on John Henry, which was an animated short that my buddy Mark Hen was directing. And so I supervised on John Henry and then simultaneous to that, a Roger Rabbit short, they were, they were thinking about doing a Roger Rabbit sequel. And so I took on a big chunk of animation for this test that they were doing. And then California called and said, oh, can you work on Tarzan? And just do it at nights and on weekends. So it must be in the way of your John Henry work during the day. And so I just not only didn't have hardly any break, but I just, I just stacked on two other jobs on top of that. Yeah. And it was all like, oh my gosh, it's finally happening, right? I'm finally yeah. in that position that I felt like I deserved five years before that, but finally had gotten there and people were wanting me and asking for me to do specific things. I was like the only animator in Florida that worked that animated on Tarzan. I was like, it was a very specific section they wanted me to do. So it was an honor, 
but I just said yes to everything. And so what ended up happening was I got sick. I came in one weekend and I loved work. I wanted to stay there as long as I could. And again, this was a mindset that was not, I was excluding God and my family. I was a Christian, but what I was doing was I was definitely making Disney and animation my altar. You know, I was yep. worshiping at the, at uh, the Disney altar, I guess you could say. And I got sick because I, so I came in one Monday, I had a sore throat all weekend and it just got worse and worse, but I still went in because I loved it. And about halfway through the day, I I'm like, Oh, my head hurts and stuff. And I'm going to go home. And my wife calls, she was running errands or whatever, but she's like, Hey, where are you? I'm like, I'm at home. I'm just, and she's immediately alarmed when I say I'm at home because (laughs) she's like, you don't go home. You, You love that place. And so I'm at home, I'm like, babe, I'm just going to shut my eyes and take a little nap because like the lights kind of hurt, you know, makes the, my head hurt more. She's like, that's a migraine. Now, okay, back up. I've never had a headache before. I hate to say this. I know. Right. Everyone people, hates you. Yeah. A lot of people hate me. And my brother's <laughs> the same way. I think it's because we split our brain at one point <laughs> in our lives. And so we both never had headaches. So I didn't know what this really was. And that's why when she said, oh, that's a migraine. We, I'm coming home and taking you to the doctor. I was like, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm fine. Just some kind of just need to go. Sure enough, she drags me to the doctor and I'm kicking and screaming the whole way. And when we get there, they immediately test me and they, they say, you have meningitis. Oh, I had, a, had an infection in my brain that basically what they found out later was that the infection in my throat, the sore throat I had was really bad, but it, it somehow went up into my brain and basically hmm. my brain was swelling and that's what meningitis basically is. Yeah. And they couldn't figure it out. They couldn't figure out what was causing it. And, and, uh, at first, and then they put me on like, so I was in, in the hospital for a week with IVs in me and like very strong drugs going in trying to kill this infection. And it took them a while. The sore throat went away within a day or so, but then after that, it still wouldn't go away. They like couldn't figure out what it was. And it literally took a week before they could. And, and I just remember my wife being there every day, coming in and just crying. And, you know, I could have died. And the doctors were saying that. And the first day I was there, they didn't know if it was viral meningitis or um, uh, what's the airborne one? I can't remember. But um, I, they do think it was the viral one. So, yeah. But in the end, you know, I saw not only her love for me and her dedication, her concern, her worry and all that, but... I, what happened was, was, and I didn't even know it was happening even during that process, is that I came back, I came out of the hospital and I went back to work literally a week later. I still had plugs in me. I was going home at lunch to get IV put into me. Yeah. Still stupid. But I wanted to get back. But as soon as I got there, I looked at things differently. And I know that this has happened to some of the listeners. There's times in your life where, uh, this is a little bit like what I told your daughter about Simba, is something kind of big sometimes has to happen to rejiggy your brain. And and it's a God thing, 100%. And if you're not a believer and that's happened to you, I hope you relook at that and trace back all those little things, those little events that had to happen for everything to line up to make that happen in your life to make you think differently. Because pe- people don't think differently easily, right? Yeah. And this was that moment. This was that. So I came back into work and I was just like wanting to get back into it. but. I still loved it. I still love Disney. I still love my job. But there was something that had been pulled away in my brain that went, yeah, but I can do this nine to five. I can go home. I re-looked at my relationship with my God and my family. 
because of that moment. And this is all leading up to your question, which is how did I get to Big Idea? Within weeks, if not a month of that, I get this random email. I was in the National Cartoonist Society. So I got this, I was on a, this is early internet. So it was like yeah, this. Yeah. Like listserv, yeah. Yeah, it's like what Reddit is now, but it was like just a chat room kind of thing for for cartoonists. And Chris Brown, I remember this. He was the artist for Hagar the Horrible. He's like, well, I got a day job, but you know, I thought I'd throw this job posting up here because some headhunter sent it to me, but obviously, you know, kind of busy. And it was for Big Idea Productions. It was to go to this little studio in Chicago and be like a technical director. I wasn't qualified for it. It didn't have anything on it that said Tom Bancroft, right? But I saw it and went, oh, wait, that's the people that make VeggieTales. My kids watch those in Sunday school. I've seen those. And and I was like, immediately, and again, another God moment, I didn't even know why. I became obsessed with Big Idea. Again, this is early internet. I went to that is www.bigidea.com, <laughs> right? How does that I put in that and the semicolon? <laughs> and yeah, so I did all that. I finally get to their their website and they had a newsletter and all this and, and I'm reading all about it. I'm finding out about Phil Vischer, the creator of it and, and then the other co-creator, Mike Naraki. And, and I'm just like, I'm digging deep. I'm So there's the entrepreneurial side of me is getting excited too, just to see this little group that's making these amazing videos. I didn't know the whole story behind it. And so I'm, that's pushing me. But then at the same time, I'm like, I'm falling in love with the company yeah, and not just the product, yeah, actually more so the company. And so I start going around to all my coworkers, other animators, especially the ones that are Christians. And, and I'm going, do you know about Big Idea? And I'm start at Disney. I'm at the top animation studio in the world. <laughs> and I've just finished some of the, the best projects that have yeah. ever been made. Mulan and Lion like King. Like Mushu and like, hey, have you seen uh, Larry Boy? Yeah, uh, I'm, around, yeah I'm going around talking about Bob and Larry, and this, <laughs> this, but mostly this company. And so long story short, I end up reaching out to Phil Vischer and saying, I'm interested. I, I saw this job posting. Obviously, that's not me, but do you need help? And but I'm fooling myself the whole time. I'm trying to go, oh, yeah, but I'm not really interested. I'm just like, yeah, hey, yeah. I just want to kind of get to know what you guys are doing and where you're headed. And But he's sniffing me out. And so we end up going back and forth for months, just emailing back and forth to the point where one day he does say, we'd love to have you come down. Can you come get interviewed? We don't know even what the job would be, but we're making a feature film for the first time. And we need people like you that have made feature films. That would be amazing. And so I'm like, oh, that's almost like a job offer and kind of an interview. And so I go home to my wife, who I haven't told a lot about this. I've been telling her about Big Idea and just how cool it is. And, you know, I'm talking to Phil Vischer, the creator, and that's in that need and all that. But she's like, even more so than me, denying it, right? Going, oh, okay, well, that's nice. But anyway, we just built our, and we did, we just built our dream home. We had a new baby and okay, good for them. And so she goes on a run right after I come home and I tell her that basically Phil wants me to kind of maybe fly out there and and meet with him and maybe I'll do that. And she goes on a run and she comes back and she's crying. Jordan, I I know you've been here. Okay. God communicates to us through our wives and our spouses, right? Yeah. And we need it, right? And and this is the wife that I've been kind of denying, right? Not giving her my all for many years. And I'm trying to to not do that anymore. Hmm. And so when she comes home crying, I'm like, babe, what's the matter? And she's like, I think you're supposed to go to Big Idea, you know? Hmm. And 
I wouldn't let, allow myself to even feel that. Right. Mm. And so when she said that, I, yeah. I finally allowed myself to go, oh, I think I do want to go. I had, I had to finally admit it to myself. And so when she started crying like that, but why she was crying was that she didn't want to go. <laughs> she loved her house, her friends, our life there. And she was just, but I needed it to come from her. God knew I had to hear it from her because I was not going to stab her in the back again by going, oh, I'm going to go do, do whatever I want to go do. I've been doing that for years and staying late and things like that. And her saying that opened the door and she knows it now. And, and by the way, it did, we've gone full circle. I'm not going to keep going with this story. I'll probably hit it later, but we have gone full circle. We can now see why that happened. It wasn't all perfect. It, the whole arrangement was not, and we ended up going big idea went bankrupt within yeah, two yeah. and a half years of us uh, getting there. We were able, and we don't often get this in this life, but we were able to see a few years later after that kind of why, why a lot of that happened because We've been blessed here in Franklin, Tennessee, many times by that, by me going to VeggieTales. Very, very cool. I love that story and, and completely can understand the Lord speaking through our wives who are filled with his spirit, our spouses. All right, fast forward, way fast forward to today. Give us the 60 second pitch of what you're doing right now with Pencilish. The short answer is Pencilish Animation Studios is a it's an entertainment company where we're going to create first with animation, but eventually with live action too. And we're going to create people's IPs, their ideas and my own, of course, too. And whichever this is the best idea is going to win, but then we're going to invest in those IPs, that intellectual property and create that either as a TV series or a feature film, whatever's best for it. And we're starting with TV type series, but we're doing short form entertainment. And so because the world lives on their phone. And a lot of our target audience, of course, does, which would be sort of like middle school, high school in general. We don't want to do preschool. We're more interested yeah. in a little bit older. And that's the TikTok generation, right? And that's the Instagram generation. Again, I'm in that world, even though I'm an old guy. Yeah. And uh, so I know it well, and I, I know artists. I know what they want. And so we're creating about three or four series that we're going to launch on a YouTube channel, Pencilish YouTube channel, and, and when I say they're short form, there'll be five or 10 episodes for a series, but it'll be each episode is only about three to five minutes long. They're very short, but they're sequential. You get to know the storylines and the characters. And it's really kind of what web comics are already doing. But now we're doing the animated version of that. I love and, it. And this is the first time an animation studio has been crowdfunded like this, right? Yeah. I yeah, believe I we are the first first for profit, I will say. Sure. Um, yeah. yeah. It's very cool. I was happy to join the round and invest. I, I love this concept. So I think this is interesting. Like you're making this leap from animator to animation entrepreneur. Yeah. And you know. I've always believed that part of the art of mastering entrepreneurship is just telling great stories. Like you got to be able to tell a compelling story to investors, to your team, to customers, whomever. And in that way, you know, there's certainly some parallels to animation and illustration. Are, are you finding that to be true? The entrepreneurship is essentially just another vehicle for storytelling. Oh, a hundred percent. I, I think that's why I'm so interested in entrepreneurship. Yeah. Um, and I just keep creating things and trying to make it sort of a worldwide event like Mermaid. Um, and same with my art education website and things like that. And I've created apps and things like that. 
it's just, uh, I love the idea of getting something out into the world and seeing how people react to it and then trying to tell that story of either what that product is or, you know, what the actual story is, if it's, say, an animated series or something like that. And so having, again, a marketing guy that's a part of our company, I have a great business person that's also involved. It takes some of the fear out of it. Plus, uh, hopefully, it makes me a little bit more trustful. I don't, I don't think anybody should give me money if it was just me. <laughs> right. So the animator running the, I, uh, no. the the business of the studio. Yeah. You don't want that. But even if I am entrepreneurial, that doesn't mean that I'm like an amazing business person that knows everything about the, you know, stock market and things like that. Yeah, but you built a team. Yeah, we have an amazing team. And that hopefully when people go on wefunder.com backslash pencilish, you'll find, you know, our advisory board, which by the way, even has a, a celebrity. We have Ming-Na Wen, who's I think the only actor or actress that is uh, both in a Star Wars franchise, a Marvel franchise, and is a Disney princess all wow. simultaneously. That's yeah. like the new EGOT. That's like a more more impressive yes, uh, I, than Egotti. That's amazing. I think she's the only one too. <laughs> that's, yeah. pretty, that's pretty impressive. So Tom, I want to talk a little bit about how the gospel shapes the work you've done throughout your career. You know, when when you went to work on Veggie Tales, super clear to see how your work connected to God's yeah. work in the world, right? Less clear for some people, at least, uh, of how where that connection was at Disney or Pencilish. So I'm curious. In what ways did you view your work at Disney and now at, at Pencilish when you're not doing overtly evangelical content? How do you view that work as ministry? It's a really good question. Obviously, I'm, I fight with it every day. It, I don't think it ever gets super easy um, to know because there's going to be some little thing every day that's going to come up and go, okay, wait, how do I approach this? How do I answer this? How do I? And your relationship with God is going to be a part of that. So I guess in a way, that's the short answer is that every single decision is going through the focus of my relationship with my God. Hmm. And, and if that's not happening, okay, there's obviously a problem, but I did decide to make Pencilish a, um, one, it's a for-profit and we have, you know, tons of, of uh, shareholders. And so I didn't want to make it a Christian endeavor. And I, I must admit, I've done that. I've done uh, for CBN, I created Superbook, their new animated series. I helped create that. I directed the pilot. And then for, of course, VeggieTales, I created the Larry Boy 2D animated series for them and worked on their first feature. And so I've done a, a lot of that. I've done, a, I've illustrated a Christian Bible. So I love that side of things. But I also see that you can reach a lot more people without always having sort of because unfortunately, I have a love-hate relationship with the Christian industry. I have mostly a hate relationship. Yeah. We yeah. talked about this before. Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I just like to soften it to say love-hate. But I mean, because – and the love part, of course, is is God course. and the, and the believers the content, that are yeah. doing that work too, though, that are passionate about doing that work. But anybody that's been in that industry also knows that there's this real fight between – Oh, I want to do this as ministry. I want to get this out to as many people as possible, but I want to also be rich, you know? Right, right. And like at CBN, that was the only place I must admit, I'm going to compliment them by saying, and they don't get all the compliments, I don't think all the time. So, but Pat Robertson and then his Gordon Robertson was who, who was in charge for the Superbook project we were creating. They almost never thought about the money. And I will say there was a detrimental side to that too. Like we could have had tighter budgets and blah, blah, blah. But but in general, 
They just wanted to get it out to as many people that would see it. They would spend- They were extremely missionary. Yeah, exactly. They would spend millions of dollars on an episode, not per episode, of course, but on episodes (laughs) and get them out into the world for free if that would be the the way to get more people. And they did. There were some foreign markets that were either giving it away or practically giving it away. Yeah. And because it would just get more people and they weren't. So I love that about them. VeggieTales, we were in financial straits. Almost the, the moment I got there for about two and a half years, they were, they were trying to get back on their feet and they couldn't ultimately and went bankrupt. But, and so they would do some like quick, oh, let's pivot over here and do this. And maybe that'll make us some more money. And that, there was a little desperation there, unfortunately, that clouded those years, that big idea. I will say that I never felt like they kind of went away from what Phil thought that God wanted him to do. I, I'm not going to, I'm not saying that at all, but there was some desperation in the air. Yeah. Like, yeah. oh, you got to keep can't the light that. On. Yeah. They were still doing things that were sort of like, let's do a compilation yeah. video of, of the best silly songs. That'll make money fast, you know? Yeah. And, and I get it. That's business, right? So I, I'm certainly not saying that as a negative. But I've seen all sides of it is what I'm saying. Yeah. And I want to kind of compete with, with you know, secular entertainment yeah. because we have a little bit more freedom with the storytelling, right? Obviously, we don't have to like make a point. It's not educational. Everything I've right. ever done in the Christian realm always had to have an educational element because it was for kids. And, and so, therefore, there was always some uh, a gospel moment and it becomes a little formulaic and all of that, that, that as a creator, I want them to love what I created, that Superbook episode. I want them to like it as much as anything on Cartoon Network or on Netflix or, or Nickelodeon. But that's never really going to happen because those people creating the secular work are just going for entertainment. They'll just make it as bright, as powerful, as loud, as you know, action-y as possible, right? Or as funny. And we could never get to that level because we were always trying to make a comment. And so what I'm trying to do with Pencilish is create content that will be out in the world, will be secular. And and really it was Phil Vischer that I think said this is sometimes there's a point where there's two different kinds of things that you can do as a Christian entertainment. His, his definition was the things that are very upfront and that have gospel and all that, it, it delivers the message, right? And that's pretty much what we were doing. We we're doing a funny version of that, but that's what VeggieTales was. And then he said the next step, and we never got there at VeggieTales, but he said the next step is making stuff that's just fun and, and lives in the world, but has things that you, it's more like you're saying no to things rather than saying yes to the gospel and all that. It's more like this one's going to be without evil. You know what I mean? So like I can make a show that has a lot of the purity of the Bible without saying it. And it's really more what I take out or that I won't include, I guess you could say that makes it by a believer. That kind of art, art that is just great art first and foremost, but has redemptive themes without being explicit, sometimes is the most effective. Like I I mentioned this before, but C.S. Lewis, by the time Lewis was 17, he was pretty dead set as an agnostic. Yeah. And he read a book by George MacDonald called Fantasties. And it was this magnificent piece of fiction And he later said there was something about that book that was so true, so beautiful, that he knew there had to be a God. And it wasn't until decades later he realized McDonald was a believer, and those were redemptive themes pointing him to Christ. I think about Tangled. 
We yeah. watch Tangled all the time in my house. That movie has so many spiritual layers. It, it talks about idolatry. It talks about sacrifice, right? The whole climactic scene is a picture of Christ's death and resurrection, right? It's not preachy, but it makes us long for what Tolkien and Lewis called the true myth that underlies all the other great stories. It makes us long for the day when all the sad things will come untrue, right? And like, I don't know, like if that's all a movie does or all a book does, I think that's good. I think that honors the Lord. It, it honors the biblical narrative in the world. And it's just good art. And it's going to be seen by a heck of a lot more people, right? Yeah. Some of that is part of this is like going, okay, what things do we want content wise to be in our content? You know, but I have a strong feeling that I have a friend. Okay. I'll just say it this way. I have a friend that writes, is a script writer and he's written for Tangled, the TV series. He, he does a lot of Disney animation screenplays. And now he's like a showrunner on one of the one of their shows. I don't even think he's a believer, but he's gotten to the point where he was telling me the other day, he's like, I am so tired of going into a meeting and sort of pitching a story idea. And they're like, well, where's your LBTQ? You know, where's your, you know, where's this? Where's Not at all talking about the story, just they have this checklist, right? And they're trying to go through it and and then changing things to get that. And now... Again, I don't want to sound like that guy that's saying we don't need to have more, you know, black people represented right. in animation. No, right. you know, I'll, I'll we're, we're You're not saying it. Yeah. Good, 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 good. <laughs> Get it. But to say that now we have this sort of checklist, you know, is that too far? Are we forgetting that we're making these for kids? And again, some of that is sexual content, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. do I need to make a show for an eight-year-old? that talks about this character is homosexual. This character is whatever. Some of these labels that we put on ourselves and that aren't really a part of your life when you're eight. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, to me, it gets into talking about sex a lot earlier. Yeah. And so, I, you know, I need to fight with that. I need to go, okay, how, how do we fit into this? part of the story? How do we fit into the world here, even though we're making secular content? And by the way, we do have a show that has a homosexual character in it that was pitched to me by uh, a woman that that uh, is a writer. And she came to me and this is her story of when she was a kid um, and growing up and her neighbor was a, a gay black kid. And it wasn't a part of their story. They were like eight and 11. And so it just wasn't, she knew it. But it wasn't like an issue. And so they didn't make it an issue. And I want to tell that story. I want to show that we can tell that story and say that obviously that, that yes, he, he's gay, but he, you know, that's not a part of the story. What is, is that he has a really fun uh, personality and that they're best friends. He's loyal to his best friend and she is to him. And to me, that's the story I want to hear right now. I want yeah. to hear about people just being people and being loved for being a person, no matter what your color is, you know, and to me, that's also showing God's love in the world. It, it's, these are going to be big questions that the church has to continue to wrestle with. How do we maintain doctrinal truth, yeah. uh, be set apart and be willing to be persecuted uh, in our places of work for standing up for truth, but doing it in a winsome way? 
creating culture that tells redemptive, more biblical stories, right? Like yeah. I, I think of I think of Andy Crouch in in culture making and his core argument that the way we change culture is not by standing on the sidelines and condemning it or retreating from it. We change culture by creating more culture, creating better cultural goods, better TV shows, better books, better businesses that are more in line with, again, the true myth of the gospel. So I I want to finish that thought just a little bit more, just to say that 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 woman creator that is creating this show with us is she's a believer. And I don't think I left that part out, but she became a believer later on in life and but she didn't turn away from her best friend, obviously. Mm-hmm. And so I want to hear her version of it. I want her to go through it and tell that story from both aspects of her when she was young, but her as a Christian. And I think all we're going to see is love for people that are different, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously, I'm not saying different in a bad way. And by the way, she's different. That The point of the story is that she was a little girl that wanted to wear boys clothes and had short hair and just felt different. And she was straight, but she wants to tell that story because it's all about accepting people that are different. And why can't we say that story and do it in love and have, uh, you know, take out the controversy, take out the, because they're not, it's not not, relevant to the story. It's not relevant. It's about these two characters and how much they love each other and watch out for each other. Hmm. Hey, Tom, three questions we love to wrap up every conversation with. Number one, Mm-hmm. Uh, what books do you recommend or gift most frequently to others? Okay, Jordan, I'm really going to disappoint you here. I am not. <laughs> I'm not a reader. I am right, so not I, a can reader. We do TV. Can uh, we do TV. Play, what TV are you recommending? That I could do. Yes. Um, and, and I hope you have movies because I have a good one. Yeah, yeah, um, sure. Uh, TV is. I, I hate to say it, but it's it's going to be you know the kind of geek culture stuff. I'm very yeah. much into the geek culture. And obviously I'm recommending a lot of the Marvel stuff right now. They're doing an amazing job with Captain America and Falcon. Or yeah, yeah, sure. uh, I got that wrong, but uh, um, we've all seen it on the Disney plus homepage. So we, yeah, we, yeah, exactly. It's coming yeah. up all the time, but, and the movies of course too, but, but just as much like we're watching the crown right now on Netflix oh, and uh, love it so much. Yeah, I do too. And it's, I like that it's, hopefully a true story. I mean, I think it's pretty yeah. close from what I understand, yeah. but it's neat to see the relationships and stuff. How that, that show is so magnificently written. It really is. It's my, my all time favorites. The West wing, Aaron Sorkin is my all time hero. Oh, at, mine too. Writer. Really? Well, oh, we love, I love social network because of him. Oh, I love, social uh, network. We, watched, Moneyball. we just rewatched the West wing uh, last year so good. Yeah. I mean, that's the president you want, right? <laughs> Bartlett for America. Bartlett. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Uh, so so here's my range of TV though. West Wing, The Crown, and I'm going to give you one in your world of short form uh, animation. Mm-hmm. My kids found Bluey on Disney Plus. Have you, you seen this show? You were telling me or somebody else was. I need to look it up. I'm writing it down right now. This show is terrific. They're seven-minute episodes. Wow. They were made in Australia by the BBC, and somehow Disney acquired the rights on, on Disney+. Plus. Somehow. <laughs> it's somehow. Right, right, right. It was making money, and they acquired exactly. it. Exactly, yeah. and they bought it. It's yeah. extraordinary. Uh, it's hilarious. My wife and I laugh out loud at every episode, and it's made for you know five-year-olds. It's really great. All right. Who would you most like to hear in this podcast talking about how their faith influences the work they do in the world? 
I, you know what? I'm going to say it because it was the first one that popped in my head. Phil Vischer. Yeah. Yeah. Coke, the creator of VeggieTales. And he's obviously not doing it anymore, but he has an amazing story about losing it too. Yeah. Yeah. We'd love to have Phil. That's a great, great. I don't think, I don't think Phil's ever been an answer to that question, but that's a good one. All right. Last question. You're talking to an audience of people who do a bunch of different things vocationally. Some of them are artists. Some of them are entrepreneurs. Some of them are, uh, I don't know, janitors. We, we got a wide range of vocations. Mm-hmm. What they share is a love of the Lord and a desire to do great work in service of others. What piece of it, one piece of advice do you want to leave that audience with? I mean, I don't want to be corny. Again, first thing popping in my head is like, follow your heart. But <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because... I, okay, I'm going to reshape this. And again, I'm just... This is great. I'm saying everything on this podcast I shouldn't say. Um, <laughs> but I kind of feel like the thing that we don't know as a culture, and I'm really talking the millennials uh, yeah. especially, and now I'm going to get more in trouble, <laughs> is we're starting to go down the road as, as a as a planet that is basically saying, obviously, everyone wants their 15 minutes of fame, and, and they're all getting it, by the way. <laughs> Everybody's getting it. But we're getting to that point where we're a dream equals I deserve my dream. Okay. Just like we can say it's there is. There's an entitlement. I get I get emails all the time, almost daily, either on Instagram or direct to me, which is saying, My dream is to be a Disney animator. Look at my work and can you can you get me a job, basically? <laughs> you know, like they're that simple. And usually and, and now if they're eight years old, that's one thing. Okay, sure, okay, right. sure. No, this is how you do it, blah, blah, blah. And by the way, even at eight, they can look it up. It's all over the internet. Why are you asking me? Right, right. <laughs> but, Google your way out of problems. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, slight pet peeve there. But but when I see that, and more, more times than not, that people are asking that are not eight years old. They right. are- They're 23. 20s and 30s even. And they're like, I've always wanted to do this. And and then I click on their Instagram because at that point, I'm just dying to know. <laughs> and I see this artwork that is like below high school level. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, you have not done the work. You yeah. cannot achieve a dream and just dream it. You have to do the work. And so again, I know this is sounding, this is not the Christian answer that maybe you were looking no, for. No, I think it is actually. I think this is terrific. But yeah, I think God gives us desires of our heart that we have to do our part is the point, is that there's so many people out there that get a desire and they get confused between a dream and a goal. Okay, we, we have to then go, okay, if this really is what I'm meant to do uh, and I feel God really wants me to, I have to do the work. Disney is the Olympics of animation, Right. And so I cannot go to the Olympics as a swimmer. Let's change this analogy a little bit and compete with Michael Phelps, right? If I don't get in the pool every single day, multiple times, probably for hours at a time, right? But then why are they coming to me constantly and saying, I want to be at Disney? You know, what do I need to know? Blah, 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 at 20, 30 years old and going, yet they've hardly picked up. They don't draw every day. You can tell. Because in the words of Warren Buffett, one of my all-time favorite quotes, mm-hmm. nobody wants to get rich slow. Nobody. <laughs> Especially yeah, now. It's like true. it's just long obedience in the same direction. Yeah. Discipline over time. We talk about it so much on the podcast. Hey Tom, I want to commend you for the great work you do in the world, right? Just telling great stories, just serving your 
employers and also serving families and viewers through the ministry of excellence and just creating great art, right? And serving people in that way. By the way, the best place to find you, I'm assuming is Instagram, right? At Tom Bancroft one. Yeah. The number one. Who's Tom Bancroft zero? Who's this guy? (laughs) Someone just asked me that yesterday. (laughs) Somebody, I don't know if there's a zero, but it felt weird to take the zero when, when saying you're Tom Bancroft number one, you know, right, right. You're the the number one. It seems more positive. Yeah. You guys can go follow Tom there. He does a terrific job producing content. Tom, thanks again for joining us. You got it, Jordan. This is great. Thank you so much. That was a blast. Special thanks to four-year-old Kate for joining us on the call to mastery, making the debut of another member of the Rainer family on the show. So glad you could do that. That was a lot of fun, guys. Thank you for tuning in. Hey, if you're loving the podcast, go rate it on Apple Podcasts right now so that more people can find this content. I'll see you guys next week.